Welcome to the podcast, Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 16, entitled Mindset and Disposition. I am very excited to talk today about these two things that I find absolutely essential to the progress of young artists. I'm going to start today with an excerpt from a blog I wrote for Violinist.com years ago. Virtuosic violin is an expressive powerhouse. It is thrilling, vibrant, high-octane, and poignant, using all of our technical tools to get a musical message or set of emotions across. When a young violinist receives their first assignment of virtuosic literature, I can almost see their hearts beat faster. For many, this is the moment they have been waiting for. But suddenly, the factors involved to succeed have skyrocketed. And then, with bated breath, full hearts, and often tons of talent, we wait. For me, as a teacher, this is sometimes where things get very interesting. In the end, it isn't talent that separates this group of students headed into the upper levels of performance seeking careers in music. It is temperament and mindset along someone, or likely a group of people, protecting a child's joy, making a conscious choice to nurture their love of music above all else. I have taught virtuosic violin for over 20 years now, and a few things have become very clear. Talent matters. Discipline matters. Genetics matter. A combo of those things is an interesting, if not awesome, thing. But beyond that, solid grit in temperament, growth mindset, and a happy child are the absolute most important things in the mix. Let's talk about mindset first. If you are a frequent visitor of our IG page, You know that I prioritize Ava's mindset and disposition above all else in her training. We are huge believers in growth mindset and have scattered evidence of it all over our house from posters and t-shirts and notes and lunches, you name it. Some of the response I got from the blog I just quoted was fueled with the belief that a few people seem convinced you are born with one mindset or another and that it cannot be easily influenced. I find this to be absolutely untrue in my parenting of three kids and mentoring countless young artists over the years. I have seen it all in my teaching, working with some of the most talented kids you could ever imagine, and they've come from a variety of backgrounds and cultures. If you've been listening to the rest of my episodes, you know by now that I'm a huge advocate for educating the whole child, and I firmly believe growth mindset supports this. So let's take a moment to identify growth mindset for people who are not familiar with it. Often after I do this, people realize they are already believers, but just didn't have a term for it yet. Growth mindset is a way of learning and thinking that is based on the belief that basic abilities and success can be built through hard work and dedication, and that talent and intelligence are just the starting points. With a healthy growth mindset, children develop resilience to challenges, find traction in consistent work, 
and typically form a better sense of accountability for their successes or setbacks. In my opinion, this can serve them very well long-term to continue progressing later in their education and professional lives. On the other end of the spectrum is fixed mindset, which is the belief that you are born with what your potential is and that it cannot be influenced or changed. We hear fixed mindset comments a lot in conservatories. Let's identify some comments I have heard a lot, even lately, just as a starting point for opening some dialogues in your homes about mindset. I have often heard other parents or students say things in response to another's success, like, oh yes, but you know they are so talented, they always do well. This might be true that they are very talented, but that statement alone is a very fixed mindset comment. Children who hear this start to disassociate hard work and effort with success, and they feel that if they aren't assessed as very gifted from the start, that they will never reach their goals. It also ignores the likelihood that said musician has put in astounding amounts of work to get where they are. Ava gets this comment a lot, so I will mention it next. It must be wonderful to have a musician mom. She comes by it very naturally. Okay, so yes, Ava was born with genes that link to other musicians, and I'm sure this influences her abilities. But you can't play these pieces at the pre-college level on that alone. There is a ton of effort and hard work mixed in every day. We are doing hardcore fundamental work every morning because she's declared she wants to be a professional violinist, and that is what it takes. Any great teacher would tell you that. The persistence in doing fundamentals is not genetic, and she wasn't born with it. It is, in fact, environmental almost at this point because we've been doing it every day since she was six, so she doesn't really know life in the morning without violin. When she plays a piece with running scales and arpeggios and they're clean, she can attribute that to her hard work every morning and not to innate talent or intelligence. And I'm happy for her that she now makes that connection. If I'm honest, it took her a while to connect those dots. But now that she has, it fuels her desire to work even harder because she knows that one plus one equals two. Another aspect of growth mindset, which I think is key in understanding it, is how a young musician views their mistakes. I heard a wonderful quote from another teacher a long time ago, and it speaks volumes, so I'm going to share it here. The quote is, mistakes are information. I used to say this to my students anytime they were nervous backstage. I now ask Ava to give it her all, but to also be a good reporter on the scene of her own performances. I want a full play-by-play afterwards because what she feels and any tiny slips she had or almost had are information, and they will tell us how and what to practice next between performances or auditions. Mistakes are not failures if you have a growth mindset. They are more like road signs. Even in rehearsal, I make a point of telling Ava to be grateful for mistakes. They show us what I refer to as an x-ray of our piece and our work. What seems strong at home may show a tiny hairline fracture with piano and indicate the need for more in-depth work. 
We won't know until we throw that x-ray up and put the piece to the test with some adrenaline mixed in or an accompaniment part. As you move from one stage of learning to the next, that is from individual practice to playing for your teacher to rehearsal with piano and then finally to stage, you will be putting your work to the test every time. That x-ray will be thrown up and lit up many times and it should be exciting to have it revealed to you so that you can see where there are weaknesses or where there is the need to work differently. This moves you closer to your goal. I can't tell you how many times in my own work I have felt at a standstill, not knowing how to continue practice. Almost like I'm doing the same thing every day and not sure what to do next. This is when I know that it is time to run through it in front of someone or start rehearsals with piano or have a first rehearsal with orchestra. And as I head into any of those scenarios, I do so with the certainty that I'm about to receive a lot of new information about what I should be doing in practice the next day. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes with new students I've encountered, they have moved too quickly through these stages without reading the road signs or taking a long enough look at that x-ray because they shy away from mistakes mainly because of how they make them feel. They don't allow themselves to look at them long enough to see their value, to see them as directives for what to do next, what to do more, what to do differently. And some of this could be starting from home. If mistakes in public or in training are seen as a mark of shame or proof of shoddy work, we can see students really stall and suffer from anxieties low self-esteem, and slower progress. Some of this lands on the parents, and yes, even the teachers at times. And I'm not so sure that they're doing that on purpose. I have had both kinds of teachers in my life. I know as a teacher, when I see my students slip on stage, I take note. In fact, at all performances in my studio, I actually did take notes to apply to the next week's work and emailed the students that night. This was to influence them in many ways, of course, but one thing I was aiming for was to instill in them growth mindset, to show them that I saw mistakes as information, not failure. Now, as a parent of a young artist, I know full well how nerve-wracking and difficult it is to hear my daughter making mistakes in performance. I sweat it out sitting there in the audience just like other parents do, believe me. I want so badly for her to have an empowering experience every time, but the fact is, not every performance is going to be that for her. She won't win every competition or cut some sort of CD in every concert, and we need to find value in much more than that and start identifying it out loud for the kids to attach to. Even when we feel we prepare flawlessly for something, some of those performances or events will be lessons of a different sort, and they hold immense value. They will show her what she needs to focus more on, provide building blocks for future performances, or teach her about her ability to rally and work past mistakes to still deliver the music. I had to lose on my best performances and win on my worst performances many times in competition, before I redefined success in my own head. And once I did this, it was such a relief. I moved faster. 
all you can do is deliver the best version of your playing you can that day and then learn from it. Rinse, lather, and repeat. This is right at the guts of growth mindset because you aren't just born with what you can be. It doesn't have a ceiling that once you reach it, you're tapped out. Let's talk about why. Scientific research shows us that the brain is plastic. With focus and practice, the brain can change. It can grow new cells, and we can strengthen neurologic pathways. This is called neuroplasticity, or the ability of the brain to restructure itself based on repetitive practices. I've actually seen this in action in my own teaching. It is fascinating to watch new skills weave together and form new pathways. When you turn a student on to how this works, they can become seemingly unstoppable in progress. It's exhilarating, full of hope and promise, and it opens their minds to the idea that anything is possible. Frequently, when I take on virtuosic students, I have to explain to their parents that many performances of the larger works are needed before the body truly relaxes and does what it has been trained to do. They may even feel something was missing from their prior training, when actually there was nothing amiss. It may seem to them that some elusive element of training was missing when on their second try on stage with the Mendelssohn, they will struggle. But actually, it's just par for the course. And staying on the course does require a certain mindset. You need to get comfortable hearing mistakes on stage and working through them without judgment and with measured disappointment. Each time on stage gets you closer to your best performance. Gone are the days when you play at your studio recital and then put a piece down and start another. Large concerti are large projects, which could take the whole school year and multiple tries on stage. This shift in mindset isn't easy for some people, and we need to talk more about it. And here's another interesting thing that I've picked up along the way. Violin seems to attract fixed mindset folks sometimes, and this in and of itself can lead to struggle in my opinion. Let's talk about why that is for a moment or two, using another excerpt from my blog. To be a solo violinist or a concert violinist of a high caliber, you have to be obsessed with precision, pitch, sound, and refinement. It takes an enormous amount of attention to every detail. Hello, type A. The accuracy of the final product does matter, and especially in competition or auditions. Being a bit of a perfectionist could help in the quest of being a violinist. This would appeal to someone who has what is referred to as a fixed mindset, a person who values things sounding perfect. This type of student also believes talent and intelligence will lead them to success. And note, the music industry never works this way. These students tend to focus on appearing perfect or sounding perfect, and when they do, they feel the most satisfied and successful. They will avoid challenges in favor of being seen as better than other players, playing the same piece for years in a row in competitions rather than venturing into new literature and working through hurdles to yield progress. 
At this point, you might be wondering what kind of mindset you or your kid actually has. So let's draw some comparisons to illustrate the mindsets. In studies with children about fixed mindset and growth mindset, fixed mindset students feel smarter when they do something right the first time or before the others around them. And the growth mindset kids felt the smartest when they had to work hard for something to get it done correctly, like a large, difficult crossword or a giant jigsaw puzzle. Fixed mindset students chose challenges they knew they could master to preserve the appearance of being very smart. And growth mindset kids chose challenges they weren't sure how to master before starting them, just hoping for the best. So the perfectionist student might feel challenged adopting a growth mindset. They will have to work hard only to embrace mistakes and learn from them. And sometimes a perfectionist type kid comes from perfectionist type A parents. So that can be tricky. I understand some of this doesn't sound ideal. To embrace making mistakes in performances is difficult. But here's a real-life successful musician example. When famous violinists are performing new concerti, they don't debut it with the London Phil. They first try them out with community orchestras and get their bearings multiple times. They know, and their management knows, that that London Phil performance will get a review, and they need it to be a positive one. These prep performances are simply what the body needs to play something extraordinarily difficult because it requires so much balance and control. Most parents have no concept of this going into virtuosic training, and they will get frustrated hearing mistakes even in the first performances. They seem to equate lots of discipline and practice to the right to play the piece with little struggle. I understand their confusion. The unfortunate truth is that virtuosic violin is a beast, and it doesn't work like an exam you can cram hours for. So what can we do to influence our child's mindset? We are in a unique position as parents to really carve out opportunities to influence our kids with how growth mindset can work for them. Let's talk about how I think you can do just that. I put together a list of 12 things that I know will help. Number one, acknowledge and embrace imperfections. Mistakes are information. Avoid showing disappointment, but instead engage in an open discussion to brainstorm on strategies for the next time. Two, view challenges as opportunities. Instead of shying away from things that are initially difficult, define these as opportunities to grow their brains. Model this for them and let them see you trying harder at things, maybe even failing at things, and then having to try them again. Parents who are willing to take challenges have kids that are too. Number three, try different learning tactics. When one method doesn't work, brainstorm for another. Ask your teacher for another practice technique and set about doing that with energy and optimism. When that works in any particular instance, use it as a reference for later. Remember last year when we were stuck but then brainstormed a bit and found a new solution? Let's do that again. Number four, follow the research on brain plasticity. 
Read this research, believe it, and live it out with your child. Teach it to them and find books to read together that support it. There are many books that you can read to your children at any level to demonstrate brain plasticity. Number five, replace the word failing with the word learning. Change your choice of words. I can't say this enough. This can be hard, but we need to reword things to fully embrace growth mindset. Six, stop seeking approval and help your children do the same. Competitions are seeking approval, and we can't avoid them auditioning if they're going to be professional musicians. But we can stop overvaluing every result. We won't please everyone. Help kids form a vision of what they want out of their own performances. Guide them as they form an interpretation they really believe in, and teach them to play as a way of representing their own interpretation as best as they can. Make them into their own ambassadors. Number seven, value the process over the end result. In retrospect, it becomes incredibly clear that the process is always more important than the result. Live that now and don't wait for later. If there is a result to an audition or competition, celebrate, of course, but give equal attention to what the process taught them. What will they take away from the experience? Number eight, cultivate a sense of purpose. If we aren't doing an audition to win, why are we there? If we aren't practicing music to get a job in a major orchestra or make a good living, why are we practicing music? What is the core impetus for playing music for our kids? What is the true purpose? Yes, it can provide an income for some, and it may occasionally yield prizes. But first and foremost, we make music because we love it and because it connects us to people at a very basic and meaningful level. On your way to auditions or performances, ask yourself, where is the deeper purpose in today? Are they presenting a new work? Are they playing a piece using using unusual edits or true to original score? Do they have a different interpretation of a famous work they are excited to share? Or have they participated in writing a new arrangement? Are they playing a concert as a benefit for a great cause? Find a purpose which is deeper and meaningful to feed their spirit and reinforce that the word success is a multi-definitioned word. Number nine, in practice sessions, give your child the chance to practice phrases that promote growth mindset. Help them reword some things to their own advantage. Openly identify or discuss things students with a fixed mindset might say, like, I'm no good at this, or this is too hard. And then brainstorm alternatives, such as, what other strategies can I try? Or, it may take me some time to figure this out. There are inevitably challenges in all aspects of their practice, As soon as you see them take these challenges personally, as if they aren't good enough, ask them to verbalize what they're feeling and take a time out to discuss. Learn the power of the word yet. I can't do this yet. And then when they do get it, because they will, reflect back on the moment they thought they would never get it. What did they learn from that? They learned it was just a matter of time. Number 10. 
Display visible reminders of growth mindset vocabulary using inspirational flyers or printouts. We have these scattered all around our house, like I said earlier. I subscribe to the Big Life Journal, and they send me free printouts every week, sometimes coloring pages and games. I even write the kids' notes for their lunchboxes sometimes and include phrases which trigger growth mindset. The kids have a favorite song at their school that the music teacher there taught them, and it's called Mistakes Are Okay. It's almost a lifestyle choice. Number 11. Have students close out lessons or rehearsals or experiences with growth mindset roundup conversation. Use reflective questions and open up a dialogue as a sort of emotional closure to lessons, rehearsals, or experiences. You can do this anywhere, in the car, on a walk home, eating a meal afterwards, but do close the chapter with some reflection on how some things are moving forward, acknowledging those successes, while taking note of the need for some new strategies in other challenging spots. Was there an unnecessary amount of frustration in rehearsal? Ask them how they felt during rehearsal, and then open up a conversation about how this affected them in trying to move forward. Doing so will help students learn to evaluate their own attitudes and processes related to work. They will build a stronger work ethic and focus on the positive aspect of things, even if they struggled a bit too. Change how you give feedback to your kid after these things, using prompts that facilitate a growth mindset. This will take a while because you'll have to reword things, like I said before. But think of it like nutritional replacements that we've all had. You used to use sugar, but now maybe you use raw honey. It was hard at first, but eventually you got used to it. Start this today. Rather than awarding feedback such as, you're so smart, or you did a great job winning that competition, encourage higher introspection with prompts. Whether things go well or not, ask questions about students' mental processes. What made you feel confident today? Let's take note on that so we can do it again. Ask how they can work to improve if something was difficult for them. What do you think you can do differently next time? Ask what they took away from their mistakes. Do not recriminate if this is something they resisted correcting in rehearsals or practice. Instead, prompt them to turn inward and learn. Ask them clinically, when this happened, how did you feel? What did you learn from it? And then allow them to come to this answer on their own. I told you so's backfire in a huge way with young artists, and they will learn on their own from their mistakes. But the trick is, I think you do need to talk to them about it. There needs to be an open dialogue where there is no blame and the opportunity for them to express how they feel and what they learned is there. Many parents will skip this or immediately recriminate, and this just causes a vicious cycle, and it increases conflict. Because here's the thing. By providing the opportunity for self-evaluation, students will discover more about their ability to work through to a solution, and will pick up self-talk approaches and questions to ask themselves down the road. This is what we want, right? For them to be able to have a healthy inner dialogue and the ability to do this whole process on their own. Here's number 12. 
Model growth mindset as a parent. When we as parents are faced with a challenge or make a mistake, we can talk through the situation with our kids. It can be in any area of life. It could be interpersonal, a mistake at work, or even an organizational mistake in the home. Let them see you work through something. Don't do it in silence. I used to do this thing where I would just chastise myself in my own head. My kids would hear me say, Ugh, why did I forget that? I'm so dumb. And then they would ask what was wrong, and I would say, Don't worry about it. You can't help with this, or let mommy figure it out. But the truth is, we teach them more if we lightly explain what is happening and include them in the solution. Ask for their suggestions on how to resolve the problem. Engage in a troubleshooting conversation. While this is a process that we could go through ourselves, involving your young artist helps them recognize that everyone makes mistakes, and it's important to work through challenges in order to make progress. This will also make it more likely for them to listen to you when you try and help them as they get stuck in their own work. Okay, let's change the channel for a bit and talk about my second topic, disposition. It has been said that Dorothy DeLay would take the majority of a lesson to achieve an ideal disposition and then teach. Some of the best teachers I have ever known have done this. They are so sensitive to a child, they can help them reach an ideal state of learning and then acquire information and apply it more fluidly. So let's talk about the link between dispositions and effective learning. There are four dispositions that I want to talk about that relate to a child learning. And I think when you nurture and support all four, children are generally happier and ready to learn new things. The first one is independence. That's the ability to be self-sufficient, to self-organize, and self-manage. With a great teacher and a parent who's willing to, at least in part, oversee practice, you can model productive practice techniques, healthy mindset, and creative troubleshooting. Once this is happening for a child consistently at home, you have every right to hope that a child can do some of this on their own. I suggest to parents to try what I call practice bursts. They will know how to correctly practice a section with a metronome or a mirror in front of them. They were shown it in a lesson, and then you can reinforce by helping at home. Ask them to try it on their own and step into the next room for five minutes. That's a burst. Then come back and see progress and celebrate. My own mother did this with me by staying in the kitchen while I practiced right in the next room. She encouraged me lightly from the next room and asked what number the metronome was on. She might remark if something sounded cleaner or more in tune. We weren't in the same space. And I was taking the reins and feeling confidence through independence. Rome wasn't built in a day. If I stay true to my real talk promise, I will tell you parents walk away sooner than I feel they should. And they need to check in more and model correct behavior. This is a long-term process. I'm right smack in the middle of it with Ava. And I know that she can be productive alone for about five minutes. But these bursts are a great way to start. The second thing I want to highlight in a child's disposition is creativity. 
The creative child is imaginative, spontaneous, and innovative. Most of our musically gifted children are this way. If you listen to my beginning episodes on practice, you know that I bring in many creative projects in the practice room. I do this to embrace children's innate creativity and the joy that it evokes. It contributes to a happy disposition as well as adding to the fabric of the information they're gathering. In the past, when I've tried to encourage parents to do this, I've sometimes received some resistance. These are more nuts and bolts parents, and they are more interested in me detailing practice techniques to resolve technical hurdles. And I do that too. But I think both are important. Because to do the nuts and bolts effectively and deeply, the disposition needs to be assessed first. So take time to talk about storylines for your pieces. Introduce colors and fabrics for working on tone and articulation. Talk about the emotions that go with certain dynamics and phrases and develop characters that they'll become attached to in their music. Let them draw them in their free time and tape them up on the wall in front of where they practice. Make a dream board for their concerto. For many children, this is what makes the music come alive on stage. So don't just stick to the nuts and bolts. Nourish their creativity and their spirit, too. Another part of a child's disposition that needs to be seen by the parent is their ability to self-motivate. This is enabling a child to independently become deeply involved and engrossed in an activity or a challenge. Allow for things to happen at the pace of the child. In Montessori, a child is never moved from one station to the next on a timetable in preschool. They move when they're satisfied. Ava stayed at one table for hours one day, and the teacher told me, Sometimes in our work, we don't make it through the checklist I have in my head. But I'm feeding her motivation by letting her become engrossed in something her brain is interested in. This can be very difficult for me to do when we're on deadline, but I've found that it really pays off. So if she wants to listen to three recordings of something or talk about glissandos for five minutes or write out totally arbitrary improvisations on Chardas when we already have 20 of them, I let her. This feeds her passion and her motivation to work. As a teacher, I feel parents become too obsessed with getting everything done in a session because they probably have a checklist from the teacher and they don't respect enough of a child's motivation to pursue something they are drawn to. If you work thoughtfully and purposefully all week, you may still get everything done on that checklist. Sometimes if Ava goes what I perceive as too long at something, I will lightly intervene and tell her we may need to add an extra session later for that so that we can try and finish the work she's been assigned. She generally responds well to this. It's a negotiation of sorts, but I would never keep her from doing something she genuinely feels passionate about. And I've arrived at many lessons saying, hi, we didn't quite finish X, Y, or Z, but we almost did because we became really interested in something else and she wanted to do a lot of that, but we did our best. This hardly ever bothers him, or at least it doesn't look like it does. 
He knows that we are working hard always and that I am respectful and thoughtful about how I support Ava's work. If we spend time on something which is off the grid, so to speak, he often is interested in what that was so that he can tie it into more of her literature or lessons. We all want her to remain motivated and happy practicing. She needs to stay at the stations as long as she feels them. The next aspect of disposition that I'd like to talk about is resilience. That is a child's ability to bounce back after a setback, hindrance, or frustration and retain good temperament, personality, and spirit. If you are the parent of a kid who studies classical music, you know that there can always be the possibility for technical setbacks and frustrations. Or maybe an audition doesn't go as well as expected. We need to be careful about how we foster a kid's natural, natural ability to bounce back. If I'm honest, most students I've had are quick to bounce back unless a parent hinders their ability, usually by accident. Setbacks are normal, and so are subpar auditions. It's all part of the process. This goes back to mindset. But if kids are conditioned to think that they are more linked to personal failure and taught to be fearful, they can really sink into a very unhappy place in their work where they feel down about themselves and their abilities. This produces anxiety too around performing and auditioning. I tell parents to, after a negative outcome, take a moment to observe their child's reaction before they respond. If the child is still smiling and has an open disposition, things can be moved past rather quickly, and that's good. If, as a parent, you're still concerned about things, set a time to talk to the teacher when the child is not present but allow the student to bounce back and return to their usual spirited selves. I've seen children come straight from stage after making major mistakes, still smiling. They remember the good sometimes more than the bad, and they are ready to keep working. As parents, we need to learn to shelve our concerns for a later time and instead embrace the child's resilience in that moment. This is what will retain their happiness for future training, and we're in it for the long haul. Not one performance or one result, but years of happy practicing and learning. My last word on disposition is to be mindful of not just a child's disposition, but also of your own. I advise anyone working regularly with children in practice at home to be mindful that their disposition is fluid and happy before engaging in practice. Sometimes I need 30 minutes of alone time to get there. If I'm hassled about something, it's the worst time for me to begin practice with Ava. If I'm distracted or expecting an email or a phone call any second, That's not an ideal time for me to be present and focused on helping. We are responsible for the environment where they learn at home, and part of that environment is the energy in it. Most days, I take a bit of time before we begin work to organize my thoughts, brew some tea, and get in a good mind space for creative workflow. She sees me doing this, and I hope I'm modeling good behavior for her later. I am actively practicing too for my own concerts, and I'm careful to never do so grumpy or tired. 
I know I don't work well that way, and I want her to see that I value my time with my instrument as a time to connect with music and with my craft. So examine when you are practicing and make sure that it is at a time and in a space where everyone is in the right disposition to be productive and thoughtful. Nothing beautiful happens in a rush or just with a checklist. And practice can be beautiful, I promise. Don't miss our next episode on goal setting, repertoire windows, and keeping kids motivated. If you're a parent that struggles to keep their kids' practice on track or has them slump in the summer or on holiday breaks, this episode was written for you. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect. Let's connect.